Welcome back to The Irish Astronaut, our podcast about the NBA, specifically the Houston Rockets and the Boston Celtics. There's been a whole lot of turmoil in the league recently, and on this day, the first day with no games in 35 days in the league, we're here to break it all down. I'm joined today, as always, by my co-host, Murtaza. And Murtaza, what do you make of what's going on in the East right now? Let's start off in the Eastern Conference. Hey, everyone. It's been a long time, no see. Um, I'm glad to be recording with my best friend, Ethan, right now. Uh, As for what's happening in the Eastern Conference, we see a lot of unexpected results. Obviously, yesterday, Ben Simmons was clowned mercilessly um, into oblivion. And now it seems that the Hawks are going against the Bucks in what looks to be a thrilling yet unexpected Eastern Conference Finals. Um, from my perspective, it seems that the Bucks are a better team in virtually every category. Uh, but in order for the Atlanta Hawks to even be in this conversation, they've had to show a lot of grit, a lot of heart. Um, and that's one of those, those intangible skills that can really help in these deep playoff runs. So personally, I think it'll be Bucks and six. I think the Bucks have too much talent, and they can defend Trey Young with Drew Holiday and Chris Middleton. But I wouldn't put it past the Hawks to make this a very competitive series. Before we look forward to the Bucks and the Bucks and the Hawks in this series, I want to take a deeper dive into what went wrong for the Sixers because this series I think is really emblematic of the problems they've faced so far this year. Starting with something I think a lot of people are overlooking, the injury to Danny Green. Without Danny Green on the floor, you lose one of your prime floor spacers, and you're forced to look to some stopgap options. For instance, Forkon Korkmaz for shooting that Danny Green would have provided. Shake Milton was getting more minutes than he probably would have gotten. And then even rookies like Tyrese Maxey were forced to fill in. And so without Danny Green's veteran leadership, he's won two championships in the past three years. I think there's some genuine questions about where the Sixers were going to find their offensive identity. And it sure wasn't coming from Ben Simmons because uh, you saw from Joel Embiid and Doc Rivers last night, both of them pretty vocally and publicly criticizing Simmons' performance in this game with Rivers saying that he didn't know whether Ben Simmons could be a championship point guard. And I think that's a genuine question now, right? We've heard from Charles Barkley, for instance, that Ben Simmons can be an all-star, but honestly might not be able to elevate a team past the second round of the playoffs, largely because of problems with the shooting and offensive confidence. Putting up five points or eight points in critical games of the playoffs just isn't going to do it anymore. And it really, really raises questions about the fit between Embiid and Simmons, whether you can have those two guys on the floor at the same time when they both like to occupy the same space down in the paint. Often you saw Simmons during this series playing like even a small ball center, right? Definitely not spacing the floor, at times staying stagnant in the dunker spot, not screening, not moving off the ball, not assisting his teammates. And although Simmons has gotten a lot of praise for his playmaking ability in the past, we didn't see that in this series either. So I think it's it's very difficult to think about uh, Simmons and his future on the Sixers. If I am... Uh, Daryl Morey right now, I'm thinking about the next destination for Simmons. Um, I'm looking to find a point guard who both can direct the offense in the clutch and can make tough shots to take the pressure off of Embiid come closing time. 
And I know we've talked a lot about the Sixers depth, right? They have Tobias Harris is a great third option, but Tobias Harris should not be your closer come playoffs time. There were a bunch of drives late in that game seven against Atlanta. Tobias Harris would go to the rack, it would roll around the rim, and then it would rim out. Um, and that's just, you know, not where you're looking for. Instead, you'd much rather have Simmons, for instance, hitting open dunks. But the one time he got an open dunk, he passed it up for Matisse Thibel, and then it turned into one free throw rather than a possible three-point play. Mert, do you think Simmons has a place on the Sixers? And if not, where should he go? Hi, Ethan. Yeah, so I agree with pretty much everything you just said. Personally, I think his future with the Sixers is non-existent, especially after he was basically thrown under the bus by his coach, Doc Rivers, by his best teammate, Joel Embiid, the MVP candidate. There's just no reality that I see where Ben Simmons is returning to the Philadelphia 76ers come this next regular season. In terms of optimal places for him to be traded, I've heard a lot of trades suggested for CJ McCollum in a Ben Simmons straight swap, perhaps, after CJ McCollum's disappointing performance for the Portland Trailblazers early in the first round in the Western Conference. Um, I feel like this would make sense for both teams. Obviously, Portland has defensive deficiencies, which could be solved by adding a potential Defensive Player of the Year candidate. And with the 76ers, you gain CJ McCollum, who is known for his shot-creating ability. But the problem that the 76ers face is that at this point, you don't think that any trade you're going to get with any other NBA franchise is going to be of equal value. Ben Simmons' stock has dropped so precipitously in the last couple of months. We are far along from the times where he was potentially considered a centerpiece in the James Harden days, uh, or in the potential James Harden trade uh, with the Houston Rockets. So Portland seems like a good fit, uh, but honestly, it could be any one of the 28 other teams, 29 other teams that are looking to trade for Ben Simmons. Yeah, I would say in terms of the Portland trade, I'm not sure how CJ McCollum would fit in with the Sixers' need for a playmaker. If you look at their current roster construction, they have a lot of guys who can knock down shots. I'm not sure if they have a lot of people who can create shots for others, which is what I think they should be looking for. And I think I want to draw a distinction between Simmons and Russell Westbrook. Both of them are really similar players in that they rely a lot on their athleticism to put points on the board. Um, and they're also not great shooters, right? Russell Westbrook has never been famed for his prowess at the three-point line. But Russ does carry a sort of confidence that Ben Simmons doesn't have. For instance, hack a Russ isn't going to be as successful a strategy as hack a Ben. And to add on to that, Russ can lead an offense, right? He knows when to pass. He knows to how to draw defenders to him in the paint and then kick it out for open threes. I'm not sure if Simmons has yet developed that skill. All right. And Ethan, um, just before you move on, it reminds me of a pretty funny Dion Waiters quote. Uh, I'm sure you've heard it on NBA Twitter. That he said he would rather go 0 for 27 from the field rather than 0 for 9 because it means that you stopped shooting at 0 for 9. So I, I feel like that's a pretty good similarity to Russell Westbrook. It couldn't matter whether he's like not even hitting the backboard, he's airballing every single shot he's going to take you know that Russell Westbrook is going to be aggressive in transition, in defense. And even if that leads to some unforced errors, you can kind of live with the results, especially because it's such a likable personality with Russ. My issue with Ben Simmons principally, 
not only just that he doesn't take shots or isn't good at them, it's that sometimes his body language seems that he's completely dejected in a Game 7 in the Eastern Conference semifinals. I mean, you know, you have to have some commitment to not just the Philadelphia 76ers as a team, not just the city, but a commitment to yourself that you want to perform in the brightest lights, in the biggest stages in the NBA, you know, in the playoffs. You're going to write a name for yourself, a legacy for yourself. And to see Ben Simmons just completely falter is very disappointing. Yeah, it is demoralizing, especially if you're one of his teammates. Let's next take a post-mortem look at the other team knocked out in the Eastern Conference semifinals, the Brooklyn Nets. Mert, what went wrong for Brooklyn? Frankly, it's one word, injuries. Um, it's almost shocking to look at who, the teams that are remaining in the Eastern Conference Finals and juxtaposing them to a fully healthy Brooklyn team with Kyrie Irving, James Harden not dealing with a grade two hamstring, and Kevin Durant. I mean, if anything, this Eastern Conference uh, playoff bracket has proven that at best, Brooklyn is literally unbeatable. Because with a grade two hamstring, James Harden, and Kevin Durant playing literally 48 minutes every game for three games straight on back-to-back-to-back games. They were within a couple of points. In fact, a couple of inches, basically, with that Kevin Durant game-winner, game-tying shot of winning the whole series, even with Joe Harris looking like a plumber for most of the series. So, if anything, it proves that Brooklyn has a legitimate, legitimate title uh, contender with their team for years to come. Um, and hopefully in future seasons, they aren't dealing with the injury bug as much as they did this year. Yeah, I don't know if we can place all the blame on injuries either. I think Steve Nash has largely done a good job as coach this year. But I think it's also important to to analyze his decision to keep his stars in the game for the entire duration of the game. Durant was completely, completely gassed. By the end of that game, right? He had to play 48 minutes and then all of overtime to the point where he airballed his final shot, largely because, right, his muscles are fatigued. And so you think about the depth that he has on his bench, right? He has um, Jeff Green, who's a proven playoff performer. Uh, he has uh, Blake Griffin, who can he can turn to for offensive output. I'm not sure if putting the entire game on Katie's shoulders was the right move. If I'm Steve Nash, I'm subbing him out for part of the second quarter, letting my bench unit run a little, and then saving some of that gas for the fourth quarter and for that potential overtime. It is still incredibly impressive, the performance that KD was able to put up, hitting that shot right at the buzzer um, in the end of regulation to keep Brooklyn in it. But I do think that it's emblematic of the Brooklyn season that they went something like one for 12 in that overtime hitting like a single James Harden three-pointer and then they didn't score again um, props to Milwaukee's defense for being part of that there was that one great Brooke Lopez block at the end but it's also just Brooklyn not being prepared not being conditioned not having any energy left in the tank and Ethan can we just quickly discuss now that you mentioned Brooke Lopez all props to him for the block. But Brooke Lopez has got to be the dumbest NBA player since J.R. Smith. 
I'm in the guy. <laughs> two, like two seconds left in the shot clock. And I get it. It's Brooke Lopez. You have Giannis on your team. You have Drew Holiday. You have Chris Middleton. There are stars, on, stars and superstars in your team. But you get the ball with two seconds left in the shot clock and you're trying to pump fake or trying to pass to Giannis. Like, bro, just take the shot. Um, so, I mean, I'm just happy for Brooke Lopez's uh, sake that he was able to win the game and have, like, a meaningful play at the end because otherwise he would have been memed to oblivion like J.R. Smith uh, in the 2018 NBA Finals with the Cavs. Yeah, if they had lost that, I think Brooke Lopez might have been murdered back in Milwaukee. But good for his sake that they, that they came out with the win. All right, let's look ahead to this Eastern Conference Finals. You already discussed briefly what you think the Bucks are going to be able to do when it comes to the Hawks. I want to get more specific and talk about some really important matchups. The first matchup, of course, is, as in any case with the Bucks, Giannis, right? Who is on Giannis, um, and how is Giannis able to perform when it comes to his offensive production? We've seen, as of late, the Bucks have been turning to a lot of post-ups with Giannis, where he's very effective, but also sometimes he gets the ball at the top of the key, and defenses are able to wall him off, and he becomes stagnant. What are you expecting from Giannis in this next series? So if you're the Atlanta Hawks, the principal defender you'll probably have on Giannis is going to be Clint Capella, um, especially given that it seems that the Bucks are opting for a seven-man, eight-man rotation in the NBA playoffs where Giannis is either playing power forward or center. Um, the other option you have is to put some of your lengthy wings like Danilo Gallinari um, and other taller uh, power forwards, small forward types on Giannis. Either way, I think in this series, it's almost like a pick-your-own-poison if you're Atlanta. If you put Clint Capella, he's going to be too slow. Giannis is just going to bulldoze him. Uh, and if you try and put a, a Danilo Gallinari, then it's going to have a pretty similar impact. So I think either way, um, you're going to have to defend Giannis by committee in the same way that Toronto was able to stop Giannis in 2019 and Miami was able to stop that uh, Giannis in 2020. You have to have a full team setup where you're committing three to four players in transition to prevent Giannis from steamrolling to the paint. Because in a half-court setting, Giannis simply isn't as good. Um, so maximizing the amount of half-court sets that you force the Milwaukee Bucks into will likely yield to the best results for the Atlanta Hawks. Yeah, we often talk about Giannis as a freight train in transition, right? So you really, if you're Atlanta... You want to control the offensive glass, prevent him from getting a full head of steam when he's running the floor in transition. And then you also want to build that wall, right? Like that's the most important thing when it comes to stopping Giannis. Don't let him get to the rim. On the flip side, let's talk about Trey Young. So Trey is a really interesting player, at least for me, because he presents a lot of problems for defenses. The first is his playmaking, right? Um, Clint Capella is a constant lob threat, and that prevents opposing bigs from helping off of Clint Capella and stopping Trey Young. Add on to that the fact that the Milwaukee Bucks are one of the pioneers and one of the uh, current followers of the philosophy of the drop defense, right, where Brooke Lopez stays back in the paint to try and prevent easy buckets there. The problem with that is that Trey Young can hit the floater 99 times out of 100, right? So if Brooke Lopez stays back to defend Capella and stop the lob threat, then Trey Young dices you up with a floater. That's where Drew Holiday comes in. It'll be Holiday's responsibility to stay with Trey Young, get around screens, and stay in front of him, prevent him from putting that floater up, while also staying out of foul trouble. 
That's a tough job, but I think if anybody's up for it, Drew Holiday is. Incredible footwork on the defensive end, really active mobile hands, and anticipation to get around screens. I think he has all the tools he needs in order to keep Trey Young in check. Um, we saw, for instance, in the Sixers game, he didn't really come alive until the fourth quarter, right? Largely because of great defense from Matisse Thybul and Ben Simmons. It'll be up to Drew Holiday to try to replicate that over the course of the series. Mert, what do you think? Yeah, I agree. If there's, um, aside from the Sixers, if there's any other team that's designed uh, to keep Trey Young at bay, it is Drew Holiday. Uh, his exceptional pick and roll defense um, will cause a lot of problems for Trey Young, given that he doesn't necessarily have the size to like James Harden or Luka to just beat out a defender and bully them uh, on the perimeter. Um, however, like you correctly noted, the Bucks are really known as a team that uses drop coverage with their big men, uh, Brooke Lopez, Giannis, um, and whatever personnel they have on the floor. If they continue to use drop coverage, if Budenholzer refuses to adjust his philosophy, Trey Young is going to cook them because he has a very similar mindset to James Harden that when he's driving to the paint, he can exploit a defense in a myriad of ways, either by taking that floater, like you mentioned, where he's just completely lethal, or lobbing it to Clint Capella, which not only is going to bring you two points in the game, but especially at home is going to pump out that Atlantic crowd and really shift momentum in the game. So I would really recommend that, yes, the Bucks really rely on that drop coverage, but as soon as it stops working, Budenholzer and the rest of his staff need to adjust on the fly and go towards a more switch-heavy uh, defensive strategy. All right, let's switch gears and turn to the West, where the Phoenix Suns currently have a one-game advantage over the Los Angeles Clippers. What do you think the Suns did right in Game 1, and how should the Clippers adjust to stop them going forward? One player in particular went right, and it's the one player that everyone is going to mention when they do a debrief on the Suns versus the Clippers, and that's Devin Booker. I mean, talk about a guy that was you know, disliked by a lot of NBA media and a lot of NBA fans as an empty stats player, someone who's only going to give you 20 to 30 points on a bad team. And now he's showing up in the Western Conference Finals game one with his first triple-double of his whole career, a 40-point triple-double, a master class in the zero guard in distributing for his teammates and scoring for himself. He was really showing a Kobe-like assassin's mentality on the offensive side of the ball, where he would just completely demoralize the Clippers by taking mid-range shot after mid-range shot, and at one point in the third quarter, scoring 16 straight points. So there's not enough verbs, there's not enough adjectives to describe the performance that Devin Booker uh, did on that game one. Um, but credit to the rest of the Phoenix Suns, they executed their plays very effectively. DeAndre Ayton, in particular, who has been having a fantastic playoff series, once again showed up uh, and played defense and played in a way that the Clippers couldn't exploit in the same way that they could exploit Rudy Gobert uh, in their five-out system. Uh, so ho ho holistically, the Suns just performed really well. Um, and if they continue to perform like this, especially when Chris Paul returns, it seems pretty fathomable that they might be the NBA champions. Yeah, I'll say, um, don't sleep on DeAndre Aiden. Aiden had a tremendous first quarter, 
14 points on seven for eight shooting, really, really great efficiency. And I think um, Aiden is the contrast between the Suns and the Jazz because the Jazz also have a really lethal wing score and tons of shooting around Donovan Mitchell. The difference is their center, Rudy Gobert, is a nothing on the offensive end. He doesn't give them the ability to feed it down into the post. And in doing so, he gives the Clippers license to play five smaller guys, right? They can have Marcus Morris on the floor. They don't need to drag out Zubox or Boogie Cousins. And because they uh, the Clippers don't have that those players on the floor, it gives them a lot more offensive flexibility on the other end with that five-out system. So I think as long as Aiton continues producing like he is, it'll be very difficult for the Clippers to stop him because having that five on the floor slows them down a lot, gives them a lot less versatility and flexibility. All right. In addition, in terms of the West, let's talk about uh, where Kawhi Leonard and Chris Paul go from here. There's been a lot of uh, controversy and news surrounding their injuries and illness statuses. How do you think they'll impact the series if they come back? And what are those timelines looking like? So from the latest reporting uh, from NBA media, it seems like Chris Paul should be ready for game two. He's been asymptomatic, although he did test positive and he did have the vaccine. Uh, he doesn't seem to be displaying any of the symptoms of COVID-19. Um, so hopefully he'll be back on the floor as soon as game two tomorrow night. As for Kawhi Leonard, that is still really much up in the air. It seems that the Clippers aren't willing to divulge any information about Kawhi's injury status uh, to keep the Phoenix Suns true and make sure that they don't know what's happening either. But either way, based on how people have described Kawhi's injury, the fact that it is a lower leg knee injury, it doesn't seem likely that even if Kawhi were to come back into the series, that he would be the same player that he was in the Jazz series where he was cooking up every single matchup that he got. Um, so hopefully for Kawhi's sake, his knee is doing pretty well. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if he did perform, you know, at those Utah Jazz levels. But based on an, any sort of lower leg knee injury, uh, especially on Kawhi, who relies on his explosiveness in bursts uh, to get massive jams and other uh, defensive stops, hopefully he's able to come back. Yeah, and I'll say that in Kawhi's absence, the Clippers are forced to turn to some other players who are not as reliable. Terrence Mann and Reggie Jackson both had a great series against the Jazz. I don't know, however, if they can replicate that success over the course of another series against the Suns. Additionally, on the defensive end, you're depending a lot more on, say, Patrick Beverly to pick up Devin Booker, where Kawhi Leonard, with his length and huge hands, might have been a more effective Booker stopper especially if Chris Paul comes back, the Clippers perimeter defense will really, really be tested. All right, let's turn to our two favorite teams now, leave behind uh, the successful teams and turn to our own personal miseries. Uh, Murray, why don't you start off by talking about what the Rockets are looking to do this offseason, especially in the draft? So our entire offseason will be determined tomorrow. Um, I forgot at what time, but... It's because the NBA draft lottery will be held on television. Uh, Hakeem Olajuwon will be our Rockets representative, and hopefully Hakeem um, can bring us a number one draft pick in this upcoming NBA draft. Like I mentioned, uh, and as we've talked about previ on previous episodes, 
the Houston Rockets pretty much have a 50-50 chance on keeping their pick as a result of the Chris Paul-Westbrook trade that brought Westbrook over here to H-Town. We sent our pick for this year's draft conditionally to the Oklahoma City Thunder. So if we get a top four pick, then we get to keep the pick. And if not, then we'll lose that pick and give it over to OKC, in which case we'll be drafting at 18th. Now, I wouldn't say this would be a nail in the coffin of the Rockets franchise like other Rockets media claim. However, I would say that having a number one pick, or at the very least a top four pick, would be tremendously beneficial in terms of creating a faster rebuild for the Rockets franchise, especially compared to picking at 18th, 23rd, and 24th, as we would do presently. Um, in terms of other offseason um Announcements, Avery Bradley has a team option, which many analysts are predicting that Rockets will decline, uh, which makes sense. It gets some money off their books. And the biggest free agent uh, that the Rockets have at moment is Kelly Olynyk, um, And so it'll be an ongoing discussion on whether Kelly Olynyk himself wants to stay uh, and compete with a pretty miserable franchise uh, because we are in the midst of a rebuild or if we can somehow convince him to stay. Yeah, I'll say that the Rockets' financial flexibility this season is really limited by John Wall's contract, right? $44 million on the books uh, to the point where myself and many other analysts are questioning the wisdom of the Westbrook Wall trade. Sure, the Rockets did land another pick, but they're still paying out massive amounts of money to somebody who is underproducing compared to Russell Westbrook, who led the Wizards to a playoff appearance this year, and who continues to put up really good all-around stats, recently passing Oscar Robinson with the record for the most career doubles, uh, most career triple doubles in history. So I, I think that John Wall is another question for the franchise moving forward, whether they can get him off the books as they begin this rebuild, or whether they want to keep him around as a source of veteran leadership on the condition that he's willing to stay and mentor younger players. In terms of the draft, I think that that top five pick is very important, right? We talk about um, that pick being sent to OKC, perhaps, and just what the Rockets could do with that pick, um, whether it be Cade Cunningham or Evan Mobley, who would slot well next to Christian Wood, uh, Jalen Suggs, Jonathan Kaminga, Jalen Green, all these top five players who could be really, really impactful and become franchise players for the Rockets moving forward. Um, Mert. We, we already discussed this draft class a little briefly, um, but what positional needs do you think the Rockets should look to address, regardless of whether they keep their pick in the top four or whether they look to draft at 18, 23, and 24? So if I'm being totally candid, because the Rockets are like the worst team in the NBA, I don't think positional importance really matters for this team at all. I think at this point, we're just in asset accumulation mode, and you just pick the best guy uh, with the most upside. So not only would this be applicable to a top five or a top four pick if we are lucky to win our coin toss, but also in our later first round picks at 23 and 24, or 22 and 23, I don't believe that we should be looking for some ready-made prospect uh, like a Corey Kispert out of Gonzaga, who's immediately going to contribute to our team. Rather... I would look to longer, lengthier uh, forwards, perhaps, uh, that perhaps 
may need some time to develop here in the NBA, but have a higher upside compared to those ready-made prospects. Because frankly, the Rockets, uh, they have a lot of draft capital, and it would make sense to use some of that draft capital on those potential superstar or star players rather than settling for just decent role players. All right, let's turn now to my hometown, Boston, where it has been absolute chaos for the past two weeks. Yes, sir. Starting off with Danny Ainge leaving the team in his capacity as general manager, Brad Stevens being promoted from head coach to president of basketball operations, and the start of a search for a new head coach. Here, there are a lot of questions running around, um, especially over what direction this head coach will take the Celtics in next. The favored candidate, as many media report, is Chauncey Billups, currently an assistant with the Los Angeles Clippers, um, who would move into a head coaching role with the Celtics. Although there have been other reports about various other assistants around the league, there are some who favor moving towards an established head coach, somebody who's already had experience in the league, for instance, Lloyd Pierce, who most recently coached with the Atlanta Hawks, while others believe that a more viable option would be an assistant, promoting them and moving from the ground up. Mer, what do you think? Between those two options, what should the Celtics go with? I believe you should go for an assistant who is a former player, kind of like a Chauncey Billups, who has a lot of experience playing in the NBA. I think what you're seeing consistently with some of the more successful teams in the NBA, especially the younger teams led by like Monty Williams or other players like that, is that they have a long history in the NBA, even as youth, and therefore can have a better connection with a younger generation of players. You saw how like Stan Van Gundy pretty much completely flopped in the New Orleans Pelicans. So I think the Celtics would be wise, given that they have a very young team led by two young superstars in Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, to go for a ca candidate that best reflects, you know, the youth movement that the Celtics are going towards. Yeah, I think Steve Nash is a good example of how well that can work out, right? Bringing in a former player who commands the respect of other players on the team and uses their own experience to build trust. With that said, let's turn to the other blockbuster in Celtics news. Kemba Walker headed to OKC in exchange for Al Horford and Moses Brown with a second-round pick thrown in as a sweetener for taking on Kemba's contract. Did Brad Stevens get fleeced here? What's the logic, Mert? I would say it's not a fleece. I, it just seems like a fleece because of what happened with Kyrie, what happened with Gordon Hayward, and whatnot. But out of context, this trade seems all right for the Celtics. Kemba Walker was literally a liability on the court, uh, not just based on his injuries, even when healthy, his defensive deficiencies were very clear and it was causing a lot of problems for the Celtics. So trading him and all of the money that he commands uh, with his huge contract is a pretty wise decision. Um, getting back Al Horford, I mean, sure, why not? And you're taking a flyer on Moses Brown, hoping that he can replicate some of the double-doubles and just insane Montrez Harrell-like production that he was having with the Thunder back onto the Celtics, you get some uh, insurance on Time Lord Robert Williams in the power forward center position. Uh, but we shouldn't kid ourselves what the purpose of this trade was. Brad Stevens acknowledging 
that the Kemba trade or the acquisition of Kemba Walker was a failure and trying to get rid of his contract as quickly as possible. Yeah, I'll note that in terms of finances, Moses Brown is making less than a rookie-scale contract for a 16th pick. So sending away the pick in exchange for Brown actually saves the Celtics money next year, in addition to getting money off the books in the form of Kemmer Walker in exchange for Al Horford. I think as an on-court fit, Al Horford is a much better uh, position player uh, than Robert Williams when it comes to his ability to make plays, right? When he was in Boston, he was famed as being one of the best passing bigs in the league in a way that Robert Williams really doesn't have the skill to do. But it also presents some roster construction problems where we now have five full-time centers on the roster. I guess at some points you can put Al Horford out at power forward, but Moses Brown is a pure center, Taco Fall is a pure center, and Robert Williams is certainly a pure center, not to mention Tristan Thompson. So in my view, Tristan Thompson should be off the books as well by the end of this offseason, exchanging him for some talent at point guard, um, somebody who can play make more effectively than Marcus Smart, or especially shoot better than Marcus Smart, and a supplement to that point guard rotation of Smart and Pritchard, which will be tasked with leading the Celtics offense next year. What do you think about that? Should Tristan Thompson also be on the move? Yeah, I'd imagine based on the current roster that Tristan Thompson is the odd man out. Obviously, you just traded for Al Horford. You just traded for Moses Brown, so you're not going to trade them again. Or at least I wouldn't imagine that Brad Stevens would do that. And I think Taco Fall, like even though his on-court production is like non-existent, he still seems like a player that you would like to keep uh, on the Celtics, if not for the potential that he has, just for the memes, just for the good confidence that it gives the crowd every time that he comes into the game. I think sometimes it's important to have players like that on your roster. Uh, in that case, I agree. Tristan Thompson should be explored in potential trade options alongside Marcus Smart. Uh, but again, the same problem that a lot of teams have when trading these type of players. What is the expected return? Obviously, Marcus Smart did not finish his season very elegantly. He was out, in fact, injured. And similarly, Tristan Thompson, although not injured, wasn't really playing particularly well. Um, especially as the Celtics season closed pretty quickly in a first-round exit to the Brooklyn Nets. So it's up to Brad Stevens to find a way to get rid of those players and potentially find a better fit uh, next to Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. Yeah, in my opinion, I think Taco Fall probably sells more tickets than anyone not named Jason Tatum, and I like having him around, so I'd prefer if Taco stays. Tristan Thompson, I don't mind if he's shown the door. And I think it might even be worth considering moving Robert Williams now that we have a cheaper option who fulfills much of the same role in Moses Brown. With that said, that's where we'll leave this episode for now. We hope to keep you filled in as the playoffs continues and in the future as the offseason rolls on, especially with the Rockets in the lottery. Signing off for now, this has been the Irish Astronaut.